Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis and to leave us a review on your podcast app. Coming up on the show today, Gotham Mukunda, author of the new book, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World. Uh, Gotham, welcome to Bookstack. Oh, thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And congratulations on the book. So why is picking a president the most consequential decision in the world? So because every four years, the American people choose someone who literally has the ability to change the world. I mean, we always say the president is the most powerful person on earth, right? That's sort of a cliche that's attached to the Oval Office. But we forget what that means. It is not hyperbole, right? It is literally true that at the most extreme the president of the United States is one of only two people on earth who can end human civilization, who has, you know, the effects on the global economy, effects on the global climate, effects on everything you can possibly imagine. It runs through the Oval Office. And we, the people, the American people, get to decide who has that power. I mean, it's, it's funny, as you uh, freely acknowledge at the, at the start of the book, your previous uh, book concluded that maybe individuals didn't matter as much as larger impersonal forces and uh, so on, particularly when it comes to deciding election results. But, uh, but, th- but this book does take a slightly different tack. So what I said in the first book was that most individuals don't matter, but that the relatively rare individuals who do matter a lot. And so in this book, what I'm really drilling down on is, can we understand how to pick those individuals who matter a lot so that they matter in a positive way instead of a negative one? And it's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because one of the things that you're trying to do is to create a, a more objective, non-partisan really way to think about the decision uh, that we make in, in choosing a president. But, you know, I, how difficult is that to achieve when the direction of travel uh, seems to be so much in the other direction, a, a less objective, more partisan politics that we have today? So it is hard. And I mean, that's what I'd say is uh, there wouldn't be any challenge in swimming with the current. So uh, (laughs) my wife sort of says, you always try to do things the hard way, but it's what we need. The stakes of the presidency have gotten so high and are so much higher than the founding fathers could possibly have imagined when they created the office 200 some years ago, that if we do not do a more consistently good job of picking presidents, the fate of not just the United States, but the entire world is put at risk. And that's not something any of us should want. And one of the the things that I found genuinely intriguing is that uh, you say that sometimes this matters and sometimes it doesn't, that uh, not all presidents are consequential, you say. So you know, really what you're interested in is the quality of presidents. And instead about asking whether presidents matter, uh, really, we should be asking you, say, which presidents matter. Yeah, that's, so that's, ex- that's exactly right. What I focus on when I look at leaders, first question is, are they what I call filtered or unfiltered, right? So filtered leaders are organization products, people who kind of move up the ranks in the system and are very, very fully evaluated. And if you are a filtered leader, the system has homogenized you. It, it has, it's looked at you. It knows everything there is to know about you. And it's picking you because the system believes, probably accurately, that you will do what it is wants you to do. And if, it, if you won't do what the system wants you to do, the system will just pick someone else who will. So those people do not matter in the sense that they are roughly interchangeable with other leaders who, would, who could equally have had the job. 
That doesn't mean that it's unimportant. All light bulbs are interchangeable, but you cannot read in the dark. So having a light bulb matters, having a good light bulb matters, but it doesn't matter which good light bulb you have. And it is intriguing that one of the ways in which you do this, before we even move on to discussing the, the idea of, of, of filtered and unfiltered, that uh, you, you do think that we should be thinking about presidents counterfactually as well, that uh, how, how does that work? So the way it works is you cannot evaluate someone without regards to alternatives, right? So you can say this was the outcome of a presidency. This is what happened. But you don't know if that person did a good job or a bad job unless you know what someone else would have done in their shoes. To do that, you've got to understand how they got the office, how they want, either won the presidency or you know, sometimes stumbled into the presidency. And once you've done that, you can say, well, who else could have been there and what would they have done? And if you don't know those things, then you are, what I would say is, you are telling history, you are telling us a lot about, you can tell us what happened, but you can't tell us how important it was that it was this person who made this choice. But there are, there are dangers also in that approach, aren't there? Because we can't know what, for example, uh, Mitt Romney would have done as president, or Hillary Clinton would have done as president, or Donald Trump would have done if he'd been re-elected as president. So that's absolutely true. It's, it's something that you can only do sort of, sort of with great caution. So this is something historians have discussed for, and social scientists have discussed for a very long time. They call it the Cleopatra's nose problem. Right. So the, basically, the argument is that if Cleopatra's nose had been half an inch longer, uh, Mark Antony and Julius Caesar would never have fallen in love with her and the Roman Empire would never have fallen. Right. So so very small changes could really lead to very large. Now, that's you know, that's purposefully hyperbolic. But what we have to be very careful in that, because if you play the tape forward long enough, small changes can lead to very large outcomes. Right. That's we the phrase in chaos theory we have for that's called the butterfly effect. So what I try to do is say, OK. You know, if it wasn't this person who got the job, if it wasn't, you know, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, well, who who's the most likely alternative? In that case, it's Senator Taft, the Republican, the sort of the Mr. Republican, the Southern, the Republican conservative. And so can I know with certainty what Taft would have done if he had been president? No, I don't. But I know what he said he would have done if he'd been president because he, right, he stayed in the Senate. He stayed very active in politics. He had his own position. And I know what Eisenhower thought he would have done if, he had, if Taft had become president. And so that gives us a pretty good baseline to judge what the difference was between Eisenhower and Taft. I suppose the, I mean, the, the, the comeback on that would be something that you do mention in the book or cover in the book, which is the 2000 election, which... Uh, was just uh, a few hanging chads away from uh, President Gore rather than President Bush. Uh, but, uh, but President Bush came into office talking about compassionate conservatism, not really particularly interested in uh, foreign policy, whereas, of course, events meant that he really did have to become uh, interested in foreign policy because of 9-11. So it, it, isn't that an example that really it's events in real time that matter rather than thinking about the what-ifs of history. So events matter enormously. Um, I, think, I think it was Harold Macmillan, the British prime minister, who was asked. It was indeed. Yeah, well, what will determine your policy? And he said, events, my dear boy, events. Um, and, and so absolutely true that events matter a great deal. But right, we pick presidents with the idea in mind that these events are really, that will, will occur, right? There is no president who has not had unanticipated events. And I'll just say, this isn't just about presidents, nor is my work just about presidents. The, the CEO of any company is going to deal with unanticipated events. 
And we create systems to try and think through and pick someone who who essentially can handle the unanticipated events. That's that's really what we're trying to do when we pick leaders. And in this in this scenario, what I'd say is when you have one of these unanticipated events, well, we can look at what the person who was in power did. And because, you know, we have a political system where people argue all the time, we can look at what the people who were arguing with him also or her eventually um, are, are saying they would do. So in the 2000 election, we know that George W. Bush, how he responded to 9-11, we know he eventually took us into Iraq. Can we know what Al Gore would have done in the same position? Not with certainty, but it's worth noting that Al Gore, at a time when going into Iraq, you know, was something that actually had a lot of public support, where opposing it was a politically very unpopular position. Al Gore staked out the position that, no, this is a bad idea and we must not do it. So that gives you at least a pretty good indicator that had the outcome been different, the foreign policy of the era would have been very different too. Now, you mentioned the founders uh, earlier, and in the book you talk about the system that the founders created. Uh, The Electoral College was the founders' mechanism of making sure only the best became president. Uh, You said you quote Hamilton talking about discernment and judgment and so on. Uh, how How does that system stand up today? So the system that they created has essentially that they or that they thought they were created has essentially no relationship to the system that we have today. It has evolved so completely. My dog, Rudy, I always say is, is the best dog in the world. Um, and, you know, he is a 22 pound Shih Tzu poodle. And every so often I look at this incredibly adorable creature and I say, you know, once you were a wolf. Right. So um, so somehow in an unbroken line of, of, of selective breeding, we have taken a wolf and made him into someone who right, who is happiest when he's seated in my lap, which is presumably not a wolf, right? So the American, the American political system has had unbroken continuity since 1789 when, when George Washington was sworn in. But what we have has essentially no resemblance to what we started out with. Most importantly, in the, Fed, in the Federalist Papers, the way the Electoral College is explained, and it's you know, worth noting the founders didn't, the framers of the Constitution didn't like the Electoral College. They were forced into it. They were actually kind of ashamed that they were stuck with this, with this sort of uh, structure that to, even to them didn't make a lot of sense. It was just what they were stuck with. But what they explain in the, in the Federalist Papers is that the, the Electoral College should be kind of like the British Parliament in the sense that as the Parliament up until very recently would choose the prime minister the Electoral College would be a bunch of what they said would be very, very distinguished citizens who were wise and insightful, who would get together and pick the person who was most, you know, most seemed like the person who should be president of the United States. That was their vision of the Electoral College. The number of times that has happened is zero, right? That has literally never happened. So the system that they created had a lifespan of exactly zero years. And since then, it has evolved into what we have today. And, you know, very often uh, random events play their part, too. You give some uh, examples in the book that uh, sometimes you get third party candidates in 1912 and 1992, assassination attempts, also 1912, terrorist attack in 1860, uh, even a tragic family death, such as in 1892. So so for all of the the organization, sometimes as we perhaps as we were talking about in policy terms with something like 9-11, uh, it's again, you're back to events as well, which are the very often the unknown in these elections. Right. So that's so elections are are highly chaotic. And so we have this sort of vision of elections as a smooth system. And, you know, you'll see you know, you know, you'll see people saying, well, the electoral fundamentals determine well, the electoral outcome, things like that. And all, all the stuff that campaigns do, it doesn't matter. And what I would say is if you, if you really look at every election in American history, the way I had to for this book, 
what you see is, well, most of the time that's true, but when it's not true, it's again, it's really not true. There are all these at random events. So this is why in early 2016, I wrote articles saying, look, Democrats who are hoping that Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination, because there's, they say, well, if he wins the Republican nomination, it will be easy for us to win the election. It's like, these people are crazy, right? They do not understand how random elections are. And they do not understand that if he gets the Republican nomination, he has a very good shot at winning. And so that is true across the board. And what we see in modern politics, and this was this was less true, say, 40 years ago, when just point out in 1984, Ronald Reagan won 49 states. Now, you cannot imagine a president so successful or an opposition party candidate so bad that, a, that a one candidate would win 49 states today. Partisanship has just hardened in a way that makes that virtually impossible. And 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 thinking about these uh, filtered and unfiltered uh, presidents, I, I I did find it genuinely interesting that you make the point that the less filtered a president is, the more likely that president is to be either brilliant or disastrous. That uh, these presidents represent the greatest vulnerability and the greatest potential strength. You say, uh, what are what are we going to make of that? So this is the this is I mean this is the essence of the idea in my first book and it was the motivating factor for the second book. Unfiltered leaders are the people who do things that no one else would do. And when you do something that no one else in the same situation would do, sometimes you're right and you look like a genius, but most of the time you aren't, right? Most of the time the reason no one else would do that is because it's a bad idea. So if you're in physics, for example, I worked in physics for a very long time ago. And so if you do anything in physics, you get emails from cranks who are proposing alternate theories of physics, right? Well, and, and when you, if you make the horrible mistake of replying to them, which you should never do, they'll say, well, you know, you guys laughed at Einstein. So a friend of mine would reply to that and say, it is true we laughed at Einstein, but we also laughed at Bozo the Clown. And the odds are you're not Einstein. So these unfiltered leaders are the people who do things that no one else would do. And so for me, when I was thinking about this book, what I, wanted, what I wanted to do was push my thinking forward so that I could say, well, is there a way for us to predict which of these unfiltered leaders, which of these people who do things that no one else would do, are actually going to do the things that work that no one else would do, right? We want more, you know, in the business world, I'd say, we want more people like Steve Jobs. Well, how do we find those people? And the, the, most, the core of the intellectual work of this book for both filter, filtered and unfiltered leaders and for, you know, for, it was, it was understanding what are, the what are the characteristics of candidates that make them more likely to end up on the good side of the spectrum? And, I mean, you give examples of, uh, of filtered presidents, successful filtered presidents, Kennedy, Clinton, George H.W. Bush. Um, why so? Why, why are they the successful p filtered presidents? So I want to be clear that uh, these are not my assessments of these presidents. And so it's very important to say that I, what I relied on to judge a president as a success or a failure is American historians have a tradition every four years of evaluating presidents. There's a big survey that's done every four years where they rank the presidents from sort of best to worst. Yeah. And I, I should say that we had Alvin Feltzenberg on the show earlier in the year who's written a book about these kind of presidential rankings. Indeed, he has. And these rankings are, you know, they're, they, they're fascinating source of data. They're remarkably powerful. And maybe most interestingly, they seem to be pretty nonpartisan because when conservatives did a set of their own rankings, the, res the results that conservative historians came up with were almost exactly the same as the results that, that, every, all, that sort of not all historians came up with. So there's just not a lot of difference between those two.
And so in the case of the people that you're naming, what I would say is you had a system where in particular in sort of, you say, you know, like Kennedy, George H.W. Bush, you, ha you had sort of a system that sort of understood what the challenges that they were going, that, that they were going to face was going to be, right? Like Kennedy was elected in the, in the context of the Cold War. George H.W. Bush as the Cold War was drawing to a close. You know, you have, and the system was able to assess who is the person who has the characteristics that are most likely to do handle these, these challenges well and pick someone who would do that. And so when you look at Kennedy, like our historical memory of Kennedy is that he's very young and he was very young to be elected president, but he was not a novice politician. He was actually more experienced in the upper levels of American politics than the average president of the United States. And so the, the, American, the American public and the American political system knew exactly what they were getting in John F. Kennedy and what they got was someone who knew how to do the job. Yeah, and, and you point out that that filtered presidents as well tend to fail in similar kinds of ways. Un unfiltered presidents uh, fail in their own unique ways, uh, and those are the ones who are a danger to democracy, you say. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the most catastrophically failed of all American presidents is probably Andrew Johnson, right? Uh, we sort of differentiate between the, the two candidates for the worst president, where James Buchanan failed because the system wanted him to fail. He, you know, in, in a... In a in a real sense, it was not his fault because he was picked to fail. Whereas Andrew Johnson just failed, right? Had he, had he never become president, the United States and the world would be infinitely better off. And so Johnson was, well, Johnson was chosen as vice president by Abraham Lincoln, largely because he was the only Southern senator who stayed with the Union after secession. And so the idea was that he would appeal to undecided voters and swing them onto the Republican ticket and help reelect Lincoln. And at the time Lincoln made that choice, it looked like his reelection was in great jeopardy. Now, it actually turned out his reelection was not in great jeopardy, and he did not actually need Johnson, but there was no way for him to know that. And then once, once, but once they had picked Johnson, it turns out that Johnson's particular failures were twofold. One is that he was, um, I mean, he was, an, uh, he was so severe and alcoholic that he was embarrassingly drunk at his own inauguration, which is, you know, I would say that, that that's kind of a warning sign. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the other and you know more profound failure was that Johnson, who had just Johnson had grown up dirt poor in the South, and he was just had this profound inferiority about the Southern planter complex, the Southern planter aristocracy. And so the reason he had stayed with the Union was not because he hated slavery or anything like that, but because he hated the planters who had led the secession movement. And so once he becomes president, essentially they flattered him into flipping his position. So his goal as, you know, and, you know, an extremely racist, you know, um, sort of white Southerner was to restore the, the South's pre-war social order, where the only thing that was different was that we would no longer call, you know, people, call, we would no longer use the word slavery. That was kind of Johnson's ideal world. And this was pushed back against by Northern Republicans to the extent that they actually impeached him, right? He was the first president ever to be impeached because he chose to do this, but it was too late. In 1865, the South had been so completely defeated, I mean, just the, the, it is almost impossible to overstate the brutality of the Civil War, that they would have, they were totally willing to accept civil rights. They're saying like, okay, you know, we lost, we have to go along with this. And Johnson gave them the opportunity to win the peace after they lost the war. And it took, you know, a century, essentially, to undo the damage that he did in just three years. 
And uh, one of the things that I genuinely like about the book is that you do model the kind of um, objectivity and non-partisanship that you actually talk about in the book. But uh, when you get to uh, to Donald Trump, you try to maintain those. Nevertheless, you do describe him as the most unfiltered president of all time. You suggest that perhaps the judgment of historians may well be that the US quote got off lucky. Why was he the most unfiltered and why do you think that historians will say that the US got off lucky? So that he's the most unfiltered is just an objective judgment, right? So he is the only person ever to be elected president, of the, oh, ever to be, be president of the United States, not even elected president, who had zero days of time in government before he became president. That is unprecedented. Even the most inexperienced president before him had multiple years of time in office. So government and business are different. And in particular, Donald Trump's business career was as the inheritor of a privately held family company. So it's not even like he was the CEO of you know, Disney or something like that. He was the CEO of the Trump organization. So we essentially had, we had no ability to judge his performance in government based on performance in government. We just had to speculate based on what little we knew about his, about his time in the private sector. And so that is, that is the definition of unfiltered right? Where you just have nothing. And presumably the argument is that that's very different to the process that we actually have for picking presidents, because you could argue, for example, that in many ways he was one of the most filtered presidents that he ran against a, a, an extensive Republican field with established heavyweights like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio. Then he ran against Hillary Clinton, very experienced, full support of the Democratic Party behind her and the, the whole Clinton operation uh, and so on. But uh, whereas actually Bill Clinton himself ran against what turned out to be a very weak candidate in President George H.W. Bush. But of course, he was very experienced as the governor of a, of a state. So that, that does suggest to me that the actual process, and we're about to enter two years of thinking about it, uh, maybe that that is not the best way uh, of thinking about picking a president. Yes. So that's I think you're exactly exactly right in making this argument, Richard, because what I would say is what you're describing, the process of running for office does not over right. The skills needed to succeed at running for office are very, very different from the skills needed to succeed at being in office. That disjunction is profound. And because of that disjunction, your ability to triumph in a campaign tells us very, very little about your ability to succeed when, you're, when you actually are president. Now, if, you're, if you are the governor of a state, we actually do have some data about your ability to succeed as president because we have your track record as governor. But that is not the same thing at all as running a campaign. That distinction is really, really important. And so Donald Trump, we found out, is in the particular media environment of 2016, was just really good at it. I mean, you cannot overstate the, the advantages to his campaign that he accrued by being a genius at earned media, right? Like, like, I mean, you can read the book. It's pretty clear. I'm not a Donald Trump fan. But if you calculate the value of the free media that he got during the campaign, it goes to billions of dollars. I actually remember CNN ignoring a speech by Hillary Clinton to run video of an empty podium while they were waiting for Donald Trump to show up and give his speech. So that skill set is really valuable when you are running for president. But when he was giving those briefings during the COVID, right, during, during, during the COVID pandemic, and he would give daily briefings, 
we saw that the you know those daily briefings were no different than the way he acted during the campaign, but they were so disastrous that his own staff finally prevailed on him to stop. Right, that that distinction is really noticeable. I suppose in in contrast, uh, Joe Biden would be one of the most filtered uh, presidents that he's been uh, an active politician since, well, certainly since being elected to the Senate in the 1970s. He's run as he's run as vice president. You do actually address the question of age on Joe Biden, which obviously has become a very, very sensitive question. How important do you think that is? And and, and is he one of the most filtered? So he, he is not one of the most filtered because he is the most filtered. In, in fact, so I, I, I create what I call in the what I call a filtration score, which is a, literally a number that I give to that to, to say how how filtered someone it is, someone is based on the amount of time that they spent in office before becoming president. Um, before Joe Biden became president, the highest filtration score was 24. Joe Biden's filtration score is 44. I actually had to redo the graphs in the book because he broke the vertical axis. He was so much higher than everybody else. So yeah, I strongly suspect that 50 years from now, Joe Biden will still be the most filtered person ever elected president of the United States. And so, and, and so presumably, whatever uh, judgment historians make uh, of his presidency, that your model would show that he's probably going, if he fails or if he succeeds, he's probably going to do it in a way that is consistent with filtered presidents. That's right. And, and I mean, historically, Joe Biden has been sort of like if, if you track his career, I think I have actually have a footnote about this in the book. If you track his career, he has been the median Democrat, right? Whatever the center of mass of the Democratic Party was, Joe Biden would find it and occupy that space. And so that is exactly what I would expect of him as the presidency. And you're right. I mean, the age issue is very real. Um, being president of the United States is, you know, the most important job in the world. It's also, as John Dickerson titled his wonderful book about the presidency, it's also the hardest job in the world. And doing it at doing it in your 80s is not easy. And you know, I think, you know, I guess what it says, I think Joe Biden himself is aware of that. If you had him on this show, I think he would say this would probably be easier, have been easier for me 20 years ago. That doesn't mean he can't do it, but it does. It is, I'm sure, something that not just he is concerned. I'm sure it's that everyone around him is concerned about it. Now, the final conclusion of the book is that the modern presidency contains within it the seeds of disaster. Um, that's because you say that it's possible to elect a person that essentially no rational person would actually allow to have uh, power. I, I wonder, that does not seem a particularly hopeful conclusion for American democracy, which after all has endured for two and a bit centuries, you know, arguably is the uh, is the longest running constitutional democracy in the world. Yeah, I mean, if we, we date the modern British political system to 1832, so the United States is, is considerably older even than Britain. As I occasionally remind my European friends, the American government is not older than the Italian, French, and German governments. It is older than all of them combined. And uh, particularly if we're talking about democracy rather than, you know, a constitutional parliamentary system. But uh, but certainly certainly as a democracy, that that is true. So that's right. So given that, what I would say is the first is it is in this day and age when we're, you know, Americans are very unhappy with their government. Um, I guess I am naturally contrarian. I like to remind Americans that the American government has done incredibly well for a very long time. You could, right, you, if you had decided to bet against the United States at any point in its history, you would have lost truly amazing amounts of money, right? So that, that's just a losing bet. For all of American history, that has been the ultimate losing bet. And that, and that it has a resilience, even when sometimes politics can be a comedy of errors. 
That's right. Um, there is something about the com the intersection of American society and American government that seems to work, right? It has not worked for everybody at all times. No one would deny that. Certainly, if you were African-American for most of American history, you would not look at our society and say, gee, this is working out for us. It clearly was not. But things are getting, you know, but even there, things are, have gotten better. And overall, the way, so my wife is Swedish. If Sweden, which we think of as a, you know, incredibly wealthy, successful society, if Sweden were, were you a U.S. state and you ranked it in, in sort of purchasing power in, you know, in, in per capita income, what state would be closest to Sweden? It's Missouri. So Missouri is a wonderful state, but it is not even close to one of the wealthiest states in the United States, right? So European states, which we think of as sort of models of wealth and power in developed society, would be poor in the United States. And so that is a testament to the underlying success of the system that it is hard to overstate. That being said, this is why I think it is so urgent that we make the reforms that I talk about in the book, because it is easier to break things than to fix them. And all of that success can be jeopardized. You asked me about Donald Trump and why I thought we got off easy. Well, one is we talked about the nuclear weapons, right? But we also looked at, we, you know, look at the events of January 6th. Um, that was that's sort of the worst case scenario for what a president can do, actually use the powers of the presidency to try and overturn an election. And it is not an overstatement to say that. And I sort of always ask people, play the tape forward. Suppose he had been able to get a handful of states to, to overturn their vote and to declare the electoral college for him, right? That might have been on some extraordinary, you know, if you look and squint and pretend aggressively, Maybe that would have been legal in some way, but it would have absolutely destroyed the legitimacy of the system, right? Do you really think that democratic states like California, New York, Massachusetts, you know, New, uh, you know, Maryland, the states that worth noting pay the bills in the United States, do you think they would have accepted that? And I think the answer is no, right? There's, there's just no possibility that they would have accepted that. So that sort of outcome can literally fracture a country. And once countries fractured, they are not easily put back together. If we want to continue the sort of success that has, you know, attached to the United States and even more spread it so that all Americans benefit as much as the ones at the top have, we need to make sure that we never are in a situation where the president of the United States turns against the system again. So the book is Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World. It's written by my guest, Gautam Mukunda, and published by the University of California Press. But for now, Gautam, uh, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks very much, Richard. It was, that was a pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik and Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week, but for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.